0: Hello and welcome to South Carolina Spook Show. Halloween is finally here, uh, and I am so excited. I originally had another plan for a big Halloween episode this year, uh, but unfortunately I could not make that happen due to multiple circumstances. However, I managed to find three creepy pastas. Uh, those are... Basically, internet ghost stories, for those of you who don't know what a creepypasta is. Uh, Anyway, all of them take place in South Carolina, so I thought that would be cool. Uh, So what better way to spend your Halloween than telling some ghost stories, right? So anyway, sit back, grab your candy, and prepare for some spine-tingling tales on this special Halloween episode of South Carolina Spook Show. 53, Spanish explorers found the ruins of what appeared to be a Mesoamerican steppe pyramid in what is modern South Carolina. Though the site was far beyond the borders of any known American indigenous populations, it was also of a smaller size than existing Mesoamerican structures and bore an unrecognized form of glyphic decoration. Local natives were familiar with the structure but knew nothing about it. The Spaniards sought to disassemble the building as a heathen relic and did so brick by brick, salvaging the materials to construct their own nearby settlement. Deconstruction halted, however, when one brick was uncovered at the core of the structure, carved entirely of black glass. The stone, approximately two feet by three, was impossible to move or even budge by any man or animal. Attempts were made to dig the stone out from beneath but excavation revealed that it extended indefinitely into the earth. In frustration, the captain of the explorers fired a glancing blow off the surface of the stone. The obsidian block was undamaged, but moments after the blow had struck, it silently retracted, sliding downward into a hole, quickly collapsed inward on itself, burying the retreating obsidian column. The Spaniards interpreted this as an evil omen and abandon the site, never to return. Coming up on this special Halloween episode of South Carolina Spook Show. The residents of Seneca, South Carolina, get quite the scare when a PSA seen on a local television station takes a very dark and ghastly turn. And later, tales of urban legends are a great way to get in the Halloween spirit. But for Two Boys in Gaston, Their desire for a late-night spook turns into a full-blown nightmare. Stay tuned. If you're anything like me, free time is limited. So things like yard work are just not doable. And if you're also like me, you don't even own a lawnmower. That is why All Above Landscaping is the right choice. All Above includes a variety of options when it comes to your landscaping needs, including lawn installation, design, irrigation, debris removal, maintenance, and much more. If you're in the city of Sumter and you're looking for reliable service at a friendly price, give All Above Landscaping a call today. It's 803-464-7414. Mention that you heard this ad on this podcast and you'll get a special discount on your first service. Again, that's 803-464-7414. Call All Above Landscaping today. You might have already heard of the TV broadcast hijacking in Seneca, South Carolina. The stories gained pretty wide currency on the internet and part of the broadcast is available on YouTube. Assuming it hasn't been taken down for whatever reason. For the uninitiated, the Seneca hijacking is one of the lesser known broadcast signal intrusions. It was big news here, but the nation news media barely touched on it. Anyway, I've decided to jot down my impressions of the whole thing even though other eyewitnesses have already described it more eloquently than I could. I was home on winter break when it happened, making chemistry flashcards in front of the TV. No one else was around. After watching the umpteenth Law & Order rerun, I got bored and started channel surfing. A couple minutes later, I stumbled upon this crappy public access channel where, bizarrely enough, my old high school Latin teacher was reciting a poem while wearing this dorky three-cornered hat. I watched for a few minutes and I had a pretty good laugh. I remember him as a pretty serious guy, not the sort of person who would embarrass himself in public like this. When suddenly there was a staticky crackle and the screen cut to this multicolored test pattern. Before I had time to change the channel, there was another crackle and this weird cartoon shows up on the screen. The animation style was detailed, but kind of jiggly and rough. It reminded me of those old anti-drug PSAs. Anyway, it seemed quote-unquote normal enough at first. An ordinary-looking middle-class family eating breakfast together at a round kitchen table. There was a mom with an old-fashioned hairdo, a dad, two cherub-faced kids, a boy and a girl, all very Norman Rockwell. The family is making small talk. The dad complains about his day at the office, the kids prattle on about soccer practice, and so on. Gradually though, the scene starts to get slightly sinister. A green light is seeping through the open window, and the family starts to acquire a jaundiced, unhealthy look. Their skin changes color, and their eyes become sunken. In the background, a droning radio broadcast slowly becomes perceptible. The announcer gives the date as November 15th, 2017, and starts to go on and on about some strange crisis. You can barely hear what he's saying. He says something about a green light, melting flesh, mutations, strange shapes emerging from the sea. Again and again, the phrase, report to the nearest shelter immediately, is audible. Still, the family keeps eating breakfast as if nothing was happening. And here's where it gets really macabre. The family finishes eating breakfast, and the mom loads the kids into a minivan. By now, they look really unhealthy. Their bodies are skeletally thin. The whites of their eyes are a sickly, yellowish color, and their hair is disheveled. The car drives through a landscape bathed in the green glow from before. Strange shapes bob in and out of the screen, but you can't quite tell what they are. In all the buildings the car passes look weathered and deserted. Finally, the car stops at a playground, and the mom drops off the kids before driving away. There are large, odd-colored rocks all over the ground and moaning can be heard in the distance. The kids hang mirthlessly on the monkey bars for a while. Eventually, the camera pans over to the playground and you see that the rocks littering the ground aren't rocks at all, but naked human forms, horribly disfigured. They seem to be either growing into or from the ground, I can't say which, and they are very much alive. Behind the monkey bars, a tree can be seen with a human face growing from the trunk. Its features are writhing and contorted in agony. The scene suddenly shifts to a white-collar office where the children's father is stooped over a desktop, typing away. His features are as sunken and diseased as that of the other family members, and the office is covered in a green glow. In the other cubicles, fleshless corpses sit upright at their desks, frozen in death. Finally, we see the family return home for the evening, walking through the front door together. Their skin is no longer simply jaundiced, but actually melting off, dripping from their outstretched arms and running down their faces in drops. As they are literally falling to pieces, the family sits down in the dining room and begins wordlessly eating dinner. Their flesh becomes more and more amorphous ribbons of skin dangling from their bodies like the tendrils of an octopus. I can barely describe it, but they somehow begin to merge with the chairs that they're seated on, or rather their skin grows over them. By now, their skin has the consistency of melted ice cream, and they are barely recognizable as human, except for their eyes, which somehow remain intact. The camera zooms closer and closer to the table, and finally their eyes all move directly towards the camera, conveying a feeling of unfathomable sadness. The screen goes black, and large white letters appear on the screen. Report to the nearest shelter immediately. Remaining at private residences is strictly prohibited. And with that, the screen turns to static. <laughs> I stared in stunned silence for a few minutes before the local channel switched back on. And that's all I know, really. I almost thought I was dreaming until the paper reported the story the next day. God knows what really happened. A ridiculously elaborated prank? An ill-advised viral marketing campaign? The crazier parts of the internet have their own theories. coming up on this special halloween episode of south carolina spook show tales of urban legends are a great way to get in the halloween spirit but for two boys in gaston their desire for a late night spook turns into a full-blown nightmare stay tuned Life isn't always easy. In fact, we all battle depression during life's ups and downs. Music has always been the thing that we can rely on to get us through the tough times we all face. The podcast, When Words Fail, Music Speaks, with host James and Blake, discusses the healing power of music. They interview bands, break down genres, review band biographies, and a lot more. On When Words Fail, Music Speaks, enjoy interviews and lively discussions about musicians and songs you know and love. This is a podcast any music lover will enjoy add when words fail music speaks to your podcast playlist right now available on spotify apple podcast and wherever you listen to podcasts gaston south carolina is a lonely little place sitting just south of columbia along 321 It's just a small crumb of the misshapen piece of pie on the United States plate that we call South Carolina. Its population has almost never gone over 2,000, and it's only 3.4 square miles across in all directions. It feels even lonelier when you come from a place like Roanoke, Virginia. After mom lost her job, we moved to the only place where the rest of our family resided, good old South Kakilaki. I had been moping on the trip the whole time on the way down here. The way I saw it, the only friends that I was going to be making were fire ends in that inferno of a sun. Once we got settled in at 304 Dixiana Drive, I always remembered the address because the number in it was carved in the driveway and it spelled HO if you looked at it upside down. I immediately set out into the neighborhood in search of friends. I didn't know how to ride a bike at the time and I barely even knew how to ride a skateboard. So I petered down a long stretch of road directly across from the front of the house on my cheap little Walmart board until I came to a small cul-de-sac that seemed to go uphill. Sitting outside on his front porch was a chubby kid with glasses that looked about 10 or 11, about my age at the time. I really had no one else to talk to so I asked what his name was and he told me that it was Terry. He liked being outside a lot and I didn't, but we both seemed to like video games. So with that, we would get along just fine. There was one thing that he hadn't told me over the next few weeks that we spent riding around the neighborhood. He was into scary movies. I was a massive chicken when it came to anything that seemed intent on forcing you to change your underwear every five minutes. So I didn't really like this aspect of him. Even worse, he had tons of horror movie action figures and loads of VHS tapes of all the creepy movies that you could think of stacked in his room. Every time I came to visit, he was almost certain to scare the living bejesus out of me with one of those creepy Freddy Krueger dolls and force me to watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre with him in the dark. His room wasn't really that nice looking to begin with. He had a bunk bed, he was an only child, and only his grandmother lived with him. In which he slept on the bottom and all his slasher flicks and action figures slept on top there were loads of holes in the walls and everything had a generally grimy feel to it it made those horrifying moments of watching pure terror in the dark all the more icky one day he realized that i pretty much hated any kind of horror movie that he threw my way he began telling me urban legends some of them were about the town as a whole but more than not They were about our particular neighborhood. I didn't really believe any of them. That is, until he told me about Hanging Man Hill. It was about a year after we had met each other and we were riding around the neighborhood. By this time, Terry had told me to man up and he had eventually taught me how to ride a bike. He stopped when we were riding in front of a house we had simply entitled The Crack Shack due to its residents being stoned out of their minds on a regular basis. He seemed to be peering out at a small pathway behind the place that went up the farther you went back. He was usually the leader when it came to showing me new places in the neighborhood so I didn't question a thing when he beckoned me to follow him up the trail. It was a pretty steep climb up the hill with plenty of sand and rocks to send anyone not being careful straight back down. It felt as though the trees were closing tighter and tighter on us until we reached a large opening at the top. Besides the empty soda bottles and used condoms, the only man-made thing in the area that I could see were long stretches of telephone poles going across a series of sandy, dry hills. If not for the two strips of heavy forest on either side of these hills, it might have gone on forever. The area didn't seem to have any particular importance. I'd expected him to bring me to some awful cemetery, but in the dying light of the late afternoon sky, those rolling hills looked beautiful. I thought that he might try some desperate last attempt to scare me, but instead he just turned to me with the most serious and grim face that I'd ever seen on him. Here we are, Hanging Man Hill, he whispered. Hanging Man Hill, is is this another one of your stories? Sort of, except this one is true. I rolled my eyes at the thought. How did he possibly expect me to believe any of his stories? He just kept staring at me with that face, waiting for me to respond. How could this even be a hanging man hill? There's no hanging man, and there's at least five dozen hills here. Right down there. Look. He pointed his finger toward the nearest telephone pole, sitting between the two closest hills to us. A small creek, no more than five feet across, ran between the two hills and went onwards into that never-ending forest. There was no hanging man but the pole itself seemed more ominous than the rest. Roy Terrence, he whispered. Who? It wouldn't be Hanging Man Hill without a Hanging Man, would it? He bolted down the first hill on that blazing orange bike of his. I tried to keep up, but Walmart and sporting goods don't seem to mix. There was a faulty chain on my cheap, dull red bike. The sticks from the surrounding trees had rooted themselves to the ground and were now snagging on to the dangling chain. With one mighty tug of a huge root on the bike, I was head over handlebars all the way to the bottom. I landed on my knees with a small sploosh sound as my legs hit the water. It couldn't have been more than a few inches deep. I almost called for help from Terry when I realized that he had stopped at the bottom just before I had tumbled to the creek alongside him. His head was peering upwards, looking straight at the top of the dark shadowy-looking telephone pole. little help? I squeaked. Terry broke his gaze with the pole just long enough to wrench me from the creek and get me to my feet. After that, his stare continued to be fixed on seemingly nothing at the top of the pole for the longest time. So what is it, or who is it, that you're looking for again? I grumbled in frustration. I was going to be pretty pissed if he had taken me down here, and all I'd gotten out of the trip was a banged-up knee. I hadn't noticed the pain before because the water in the stream was cool, but now it stung like the Dickens. Roy Terrence, owner of that small shed just beyond the trees over there. I hadn't noticed the shed before. It sat just behind a large oak. It couldn't have been bigger than five outhouses put together. After his wife and kid left him, he hung himself on the wires just above us. Cops didn't find much, just a charred husk of what used to be a man. Legend says that whoever is out here at his exact time of death gets strung up on the wires with him. Oh, and do tell, who would that be? For once, he broke his serious tone to give me a, I don't know, shrug, and then he was back to that grim attitude. And you're suggesting that we stay here and wait for him? Despite the many excuses I have to dispute this, I think I'm going to go with, It's late and my mom is making dinner, so I have to go home. Fine, tell your mom that you're sleeping over at my house tomorrow night, and I'll do vice versa with my grandma. Meet me here at seven. Against my better judgment, I decided that I might as well come. What harm did it do? Obviously, he was lying, and if nothing else, it would set my mind at ease to see that he was. While none of his stories actually seemed to be true up until this point, his sudden change of tone had made it slightly more believable. When he had told his other stories, he was giggling so hard that one might think he had snorted at least a pound of happy crack. When we were headed home, just as the last tint of orange had left the sky, I asked him, Why did you get so serious back there? You're always such a total goofball. I lost my grandpa to Roy Torrance. My grandma was with him when it happened. Haven't you ever wondered why she's so grumpy all the time? His grandmother, in fact, was very crotchety. I never bothered to ask why she was that way though. If this was all some elaborate hoax by Terry, I was going to slap him into next Thursday when it was done. That night, I had a horrible nightmare. Like most people, I couldn't remember much about it, but it had Roy Torrance written all over it. Even though it was roasting on that hot South Carolina night, I had woken up with chills. By the time 6 p.m. had rolled around, I'd already packed my old-school backpack with basic equipment, like a flashlight and a few bags of Chex Mix, in case we got hungry. By 6.30, I'd rolled out into the neighborhood as fast as an overweight 11-year-old could. I had to admit, I was actually pretty excited. Finally, around 6.55, I arrived at the small creek where Terry had already set up a small fire and was roasting marshmallows. If I hadn't decided to show up, I would have disappointed him like hell. How is this exactly going to work out? Are we just going to camp out here all night? We don't know when he's even supposed to show up, I said. I'll wait all night here if I have to. He had stuffed his face with a marshmallow. What? He crammed the marshmallow down his throat. I said, I'll wait all night here if I have to. Whatever, I retorted as I plopped down next to the fire. He had thrown three lighters in it to keep it lit, and began to pull out my snacks. After about three hours, the first of the crickets had begun to sing their endless chirping song as the last streak of sun had reached its end. I had begun to grow irritated and a little bit tired. Terry was wide awake, his hand glued to the bag of marshmallows. Terry, man, I'm tired. If I don't see a crispy dead dude in the next hour, I'm out. Okay. His cheeks stuck out like squirrels with another marshmallow. I snuggled up to the fire and began to doze off. Just as I was about to slip into unconsciousness, a loud, crusty, brittle, peeling sound echoed through the hills and out into the forest. I immediately sat up. My vision was pretty blurred from having almost dozed off, but I could make out Terry's shape. He was gaping, wide-eyed, at the top of the pole. If there had been a bit of moonlight, I might have seen what I was sure to have been up there, but the crescent moon sat just beyond the trees, like the shed. In an instant, Terry was on his bike and flying up the hill, bag of marshmallows in hand. I managed to pull myself up and get to my bike. I began pedaling like a madman when I realized that my chain had popped off. Stupid bike. With my eyes adjusting to the dark, I peered back at the top of the pole one more time before I bolted to the top of the hill. Roy Terrence was not so much of a person as he was a sagging shape. His flesh, dark as the night, was clinging to his bones for dear life. His facial features, though not entirely evident, seemed to be in a constant state of both agony and ecstatic joy. And that eye, that one eye he had left, deep in its socket, gazed upon me with absolute hatred and insatiable want. Just then it seemed that he was ready to climb off the wire and come up to me, The weak spine that had been holding his head to that molten pile of flesh and bones snapped, sending what was left of his skull tumbling into the fire Terry had started. It gave me one glowing, burning, satisfied grin, before disintegrating into a wisp of ash. I had been halfway up the hill before I realized I was moving. I followed the bike tracks Terry had left, which led further into the hills instead of off to the side, where the trail led back to the neighborhood. Just as I clawed my way to the top of the hill, I saw a thin shape dangling from above. Oh no, I croaked. Terry's bike, that blazing orange bike that he loved so much, was left wrecked at the base of a telephone pole. Above, Terry's body hung limply, although it didn't look much like Terry anymore. Terry hadn't been on the wires as long as Roy, which made it even worse. He was charred, but not entirely. His eyes bulged from his head in constant shock. What was left of his hair stood out on end, still smoking. The seemingly endless wires above entangled Terry's neck like a boa constrictor. Dangling from his scrawny, burnt little arm was a bag of marshmallows, melted to his hand from the heat. The police investigation hadn't dug up much. They had scoured all throughout the area and had not found any evidence that anyone was ever there. I begged them to search the telephone wires, but they continued to state that there was no evidence that anybody had even touched the wires. The search continued for three weeks. After police had finally given up, Terry's grandmother passed away. For those last few days, she hadn't said anything to anyone at all. She only sat and stared at the picture of her and her husband for the remainder of her life. After the house had been cleared out, the contents of Terry's room were offered to me. His entire collection of horror movies, action figures, and all else was donated to Goodwill, my request. I went back a few years later. We had gone to Gaston to visit with our family for a while, and I had requested that we stop by the neighborhood. Any evidence that we had ever been there those few fateful years ago had been swept away by the police or the weather. Now, like before, There was only useless garbage and telephone poles. Just as I was getting ready to walk away, I caught a glimpse of something in the corner of my eye. Only saw a tiny bit of it before it fluttered away. It was a melted marshmallow bag. You again for listening to another episode of South Carolina Spook Show, a special edition Halloween episode, I should say, of South Carolina Spook Show. Like I mentioned earlier, I had this plan to do something really cool for Halloween this year, and we couldn't get it worked out with timing conflicts and technical difficulties, and it uh, really sucks. But I was, I was really looking forward to that. I will still do that before the end of this year. I promise you that much. I will, I will get it done. But. Thank God I was able to find some creepy pastas that take place in South Carolina. Though you don't come by those very often, um, and uh, maybe I introduced you to this new world of ghost stories if you've never read or listened to creepypastas before they're a lot of fun it's a good way to go down a rabbit hole on youtube like i usually do Um, but anyway (laughs) please share this episode uh, with anyone who enjoys uh, south carolina lore and history uh, especially if they're a horror fan or love true crime or things like that um, you can let them know we're available on apple Podcasts, spotify google Podcasts, and much much more If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, if you don't mind, could you leave me a rating and a review of what you thought of this episode or previous episodes? It really helps me out um, like you wouldn't believe. You can also follow the show on all the social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and threads. It's at South Carolina Spook Show. And then what used to be Twitter, formerly known uh, as Twitter uh, X is uh, at scspookshow. And if you have some ideas or you have some personal stories that you would love to uh, send in, uh, you can email me scspookshow at gmail.com um, or you can shoot me a message on any of those social media sites that I mentioned before. And if you don't mind checking out my other podcast, that's called When Words Fail, Music Speaks. Um, I do that with my buddy James uh, and my new friend Amanda. Uh, We have a lot of fun. We talk about music and we talk about mental health, um, and it's a blast. For this month, we did a lot of Halloween episodes, uh, and it was tons of fun, and I think you would enjoy that. So as I mentioned before, all the stories I read today were creepypastas. Um, You can find all of these on creepypasta.com. The Blackstone and Broadcast Interruption were both submitted anonymously to creepypasta.com, and Hanging Man Hill was written by Indefinite Silence for creepypasta.com. Thank you again for listening. I'm your creator and host, Blake Mosley, and this is South Carolina Spook Show. Have a safe and happy Halloween, and I'll see you next time. Y'all stay spooky.